Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Welcome to the Permission to Be podcast. I am co-host David Roberts here with Becca Epley, your main host, and we are here with Greg Gerald my friend, founder of the QC Family Tree here in Charlotte. And none of you know this because we didn't release it, but this is actually our second conversation with Greg. Uh, we recorded an amazing conversation a few months ago that... So good. Uh, unfortunately, uh, some internet issues led to some faulty audio, and so we were forced to scrap that and re-record. Uh, I hesitate in sharing that because now we're just kind of building expectations if this isn't <laughs> this isn't half the conversation that first one was, then that mythical dialogue will just kind of exist in, in memory. We were there for it. You'll just have to believe us. But no, we're excited to talk to Greg again. At the time this is released, this may have already happened, but I'm personally excited that about a week from now, a little more than a week from this recording, Greg is going to be here uh, at Watershed, the church Beck and I attend, uh, where Greg and I are currently recording. Uh, as part of a celebration of Charlotte. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, even if have already happened uh, by the time mm-hmm. that this is released and uh, get to hear some of Greg's thoughts there. And then um, and then also the original reason that we recorded this a number of months ago is that uh, Greg has a book out, uh, Riff of Love, uh, which is about his experiences here in Charlotte. And Greg, am I right that that book just had its first anniversary? Yep, one year old Perfect. So that, that that's good timing. This actually maybe even makes more sense timing wise. We're we're doing this interview a, a year from the book mm-hmm. as opposed to probably would have been about six months. So welcome, Greg. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Greg, we are thrilled to have you with us. I had the privilege of maybe two weeks ago being able to hear you talk about your book along with and I do not remember their names, but I would love for you to talk a little bit about these events that you are doing where you combine spoken word, pieces of your book, and also this amazing musical talent that not only you have, but you have a band. And I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting her name that she joins you as well. Yeah, Dawn Anthony. Um, and mm-hmm. I worked these out. So I wrote this book project that took a couple of years to complete. But my sort of the two strands of my life that I was trying to weave together, for one, from the time I was 11 or so, started playing the saxophone and uh, still do that, play professionally around Charlotte. That is a great joy for me, but it's also work. It's a discipline and specifically mm. the discipline of improvisation, learning in the jazz idiom to play spontaneous composition, I guess, as, as you might call mm. The other kind of big strand of my life, maybe the most important piece, my work uh, doing sort of like a Catholic worker house in an amazing neighborhood where all of my neighbors are facing sort of the dual oppressions of, along race and economic lines. High poverty neighborhood. Most of my neighbors are black. I'm a middle class white guy that moved there about 15 years ago. And so the, one of the ways I've come to think of that space is that I live among master improvisers. So mm-hmm. people of, of extraordinary resilience, grit, and creativity that in the face of the oppression mm-hmm. of the empire that we live in create 
beautiful community and beautiful spaces and beautiful meals on a regular basis. Mm. So I have these kind of two streams that I'm trying to tie together that I have been studying with master improvisers for basically my entire life Mm. at this point. Uh, And so the book was just an exploration of that, me trying to work out my own kind of path, my own sense of conversion through some stories and relating those stories musically. So what we've done in live performance is to take some of the themes that we've worked out musically uh, that, that I worked out in the book and to actually perform the music. So coupling music with some readings from the book, with some storytelling related to the book. I'm fortunate to work with some of the finest musicians in the state on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So you heard the result of that uh, with players of that caliber. Uh, it's a really dynamic show over the course of about an hour and 15 minutes. So we're walking through both the joys and the griefs of life in the neighborhood and the ways that that's reflected in the jazz idiom that we work with. Yeah, Dawn was, oh my goodness, she is, yeah. she's magical. Yeah. <laughs> like, she just... Yeah, yeah. that's a gift. Beck and I had been talking, and we asked Greg to to articulate, you know, or, or where would he start mm-hmm. if someone asked him, like, well, what is a theology of, of this place? What is a theology of Charlotte? And I don't want to put too much pressure on Greg to remember exactly what he said before, because it was Magical. wonderful. But let's talk about that, Greg. <laughs> if someone did say, hey, hey, where would you start? What would you name someone asked you to describe a theology of Charlotte? What would that look like? Uh, so I would start, Charlotte is the traditional lands of the Catawba. Mm. The river that runs about eight miles to the west of downtown is called the Catawba River. They now have their own sovereign lands about 40 minutes south of downtown. Mm. And the main square of our city, the sort of the primary intersection of Trade Street and Trine Street, is by lore, and it it makes sense that those are two ancient native trading paths. And so the intersection, the primary intersection now of Charlotte Banktown is the intersection of two ancient trade. Hmm. At that corner, there are these four statues, and uh, folks driving by or walking by may not necessarily notice them. They're not they're prominently displayed, but they sort of get lost in all the clatter of the city there. And so those four statues, they're each a, a depiction of, of something supported mm-hmm. to the development of the city, and there's a single word attached to each of them. So the words are commerce, transportation, industry. And future. So if I was going to write a theology of Charlotte, I would start with those that I think of as our four idols. Mm. And so particularly in a in sort of this gleaming uh, so-called New South city with our big tall buildings and such, the you know, commerce is is what makes the city run mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, right? So that, that one doesn't require a lot of explanation. There's a long history of milling here. So the, the city grew up around a gold rush and around the construction of mills. Mm. And of course the, the cotton mills were the extension of the plantation economy beyond the Civil War. And so there, there are long histories of the development of this city around bad labor practices, around union busting, around mill workers being given mill houses that were obviously second class. Mm. Right? We still have a lot of those building standing today. Transportation is, is another piece, so a big train place here. And then there's this kind of unnamed and unnoticed thing, the future. And to me, this might be the most interesting one of all, and that there's kind of local, local interpretation, is that we're always tearing down our past. Mm. So when, you, when you walk through downtown, 
uh, you'll notice that you see relatively few buildings, only a handful that were built prior to 1940. Most of the buildings that existed prior to then have been torn down and replaced with glass and concrete skyscrapers. So to me, that is a key piece of, of the theology or the ideology of the city, that there's this consistent focus on what's next on the, the newest thing, the, the bigger, the better, and a real lack of grappling with the history that we have, uh, of repairing the damage that's been done through the history that we have, or even of, of celebrating some of the, the goodness of our history. Mm -hmm. So you know, profoundly important black neighborhoods here, the deep native history that runs through here, and the revolutionary history here uh, is that Charlotte was called a hornet's nest of rebellion. <laughs> These revolutionaries who were striking out against uh, the oppressions of the British king. Uh, what a splendid metaphor for a, for a city, right? To rebel against kind of the status quo and mm -hmm. the, the oppressive taxations of the king. But now we've just turned into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's where, this, that's where the theology of this city, I would begin things, especially with that idea of the future and the way that we've neglected both the past and the present mm -hmm. in pursuit of this kind of glorious future that's really a facade over some of the emptiness that we've got, that we've got here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so your book, Riff of Love, is set against that backdrop. That's yeah. everything you just described. I mean, Takasiji is like kind of ground zero in many ways for you know, that transformation going from revolutionary to king itself. And, you know, now that king is coming in and, you know, trying to, trying to, uh, trying to buy the houses of your neighbors right. and, and, and then turn them into who knows what, right. you know, you got a, you got a Viking themed brewery coming in nearby. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so we're literally in kind of, kind of in a very you know, kind of kitsch way metaphorically. Yep. So talk to us about the way that the resistance that you have come to both learn and experience, you know, in, in living next to, you know, this community and then, and then practice yourself. How does that manifest as improvisation? Talk about, like, give us kind of concrete examples of where the master improvisers of mm. like CG Road have kind of taught you that this is well, maybe what resistance or survival looks like, you know, in, in the face of this empire. Yeah. Uh, one of the ways that I've thought about this that I've learned from other folks is that there's this ancient human urge to build all mm -hmm. right? so in places of significance uh, we leave markers of some sort mm -hmm. across cultures uh, you can think all the way back to jacob right building this altar at bethel after mm -hmm. having this magnificent dream of the angels descending and ascending this life and so one of the foundational stories within the book and, and in my own life and in the life of our community and our neighborhood was the murder of a young person mm -hmm. that was very well loved mm -hmm. His name is Khalil. He was only 13, and he was killed uh, right on the corner where QC Family Tree is, the corner mm. of the CG Road and Parkway Avenue. And what popped up immediately the following day that happened overnight, the next morning, an altar began to form. People brought flowers, and they brought uh, stuffed animals, mm. and they brought paintings that they were making, old photographs, an old bicycle that belonged to them, right? So this altar. And part of the drama of this particular corner for me well for one this this kind of improvised communal grief happens over the course of the next 48 hours mm. all concentrated in that spot this altar that's been built 
and so th it's a it's really a remarkable experience to be a participant and to have my own grief to offer in that space as well but for that to be done as part of this community about a year later we also we wound up on that same corner getting a historical marker named for the sort of the founding family of the neighborhood right it turns out that that family their patriarch Captain Alexander was a captain in the Confederate Army uh, and was a uh, white supremacist. Uh, There's a lot of really interesting history that I won't give you right now, but sort of bottom line was uh, sort of the, the most telling little piece of that history was that in 1900, at the end of what in North Carolina was called the Republican Fusion Movement, where poor black people and poor white people kind of cast their lots together voted in a lot of really amazing politicians that mm. did really amazing policy work and they got split up. They got divided by race when they had cast their economic lot together. They race was used as a wedge mm -hmm. to pry them apart. Right? So these young whippersnappers calling themselves the white supremacist party through a parade sort of announced their arrival. And this is when Jim Crow begins. And for their parade, they wanted to have one of the old guard to sort of mm. to vouch for them, right. To yeah. make it seem that, you can trust these guys. And so they called on Captain Alexander, S.B. Alexander, as he was called. They So they called on him <laughs> to be their honorary grand marshal mm -hmm. of the white supremacy parade through downtown Charlotte. So on the, on and they're the, actually using these terms. Yeah, that's what they called yeah. it. They called it the white supremacy <laughs> party. That was what they said. Uh, you know, you wouldn't say that today, although you... We're getting close. Yeah, we're pretty close. Yeah. To <laughs> I that, think they probably and, just would. So on this, on this corner exists... Uh, what in some ways are two altars, right? One is, is a historical marker that's, that's not exactly an altar, but it's a, at least a way of commemorating the presence of this person, and it really complicates the story of this land, mm -hmm. right? And right across the street from it, almost at the same intersection, is this altar that's been built to Khalil mm -hmm. that stayed for, I mean, it's we finally helped to take it down when the stuffed animals were so moldy and mm. dewy that it just didn't seem right anymore. Yeah. Mm. It was still there. Right. So for those two things to exist in the same space, you know, this kind of improvised memorial that's get, that gets built up and then this official memorial, very different, kind of darker history. You know, I think that's one of the ways that we've tried to narrate the story of our place and to say, mm. you know, look at what exists here. Mm. Look at what gets hidden, what doesn't get a marker, mm -hmm. what does get a marker, and how do we learn to tell our story in a different way? Mm -hmm. And that the tax dollars of the city paid for the one, you know, the official marker. Yeah, so the, the like, the North Carolina, the state pays for those markers, the, the archives. And one of the things that's been pointed out to me that uh, I think is important is that that marker is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm, okay. Uh, it does name the actual history that exists there. And that history was hidden in a lot of ways prior to that marker being hidden there. It was a lot harder to find the information. But once you have the name, you can go and mm. it makes it a lot easier to do research. Mm. Who was there. So I didn't know the history until that plaque got placed there. And I said, let me find out who this is. Gotcha. Right. Okay. You know, so it, there's some sense that it's like an official marker in this sacred spot that's been made sacred by this terrible act, by the grief that follows. And so it feels wrong that it's on that particular point. Mm -hmm. And also that even the small portion of the story that plaque tells sort of provides a way into understanding the complexities of all the ground. Mm -hmm. right? Those kinds of stories are built into every single inch of soil 
in this mm-hmm. empire. So they're always there to be discovered. They have the tools to find. Mm. So one thing I've appreciated, Greg, in the short time that I've known you, probably been coming up on a year now that, that you and I have known each other, is you talk about things like the reality of empire pretty plain. And that is, that's language that I've had to train into my vernacular. Mm-hmm. Because it's almost like uh, teaching a fish that they live in water. <laughs> when you are part of it, when, when empire and oppression and, and, and supremacy culture are, are just, you know, part and parcel of the air we breathe and complicity at times is active, but is always at least passive, right. it can be difficult to kind of create that sort of self-awareness. And so I want to lean into that for a second. I mean, what for you were the things that, you know, almost riffing on the theme of this podcast, permission to be, but tweaking it a little bit, improvising a little bit and saying like, what were the things that woke you up to the, the air and water of empire that, that we are part of, that we are complicit in, and in many ways, as best we can now need to be resisting, even inevitably acknowledging the fact that on some level, we're, we're always going to be complicit, at least. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways that I think I'm learning to talk about this, I, I grew up as a Southern Baptist. There's a lot about my Southern Baptist raising that I'm extremely grateful for. Mm-hmm. A wake up, a specific wake up call came for me when I was a, a college student and got sent at my request to spend a couple of summers in the city of East St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Right across the river from St. Louis, Missouri, mm-hmm. um, the disaster zone of industrial capitalism and the, the cost of post industrial capitalism mm-hmm. is born there by primarily black people mm-hmm. who are very, very, and uh, all that. So all that policy violence gets played out on the street in East St. Louis mm-hmm. in interpersonal violence. So it's pretty, it's a dangerous place yeah. to grow up mm-hmm. if you're a child there. So a little white boy from Tobacco Town, North Carolina, mm-hmm. was 100% unprepared to step into East St. Louis. Mm-hmm. I was told I was going to be a missionary there. Right? <laughs> what really was the case uh, was that people were gracious enough with me that they were, I, I was the mission field. And so through the through this remarkable hospitality that I received in that space, that was just the nature of those people. Yeah, you know, it, it really kind of turned me around. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it showed me that the theology I had been prepared with in my upbringing, well, I had some good points within it, but particularly the love of the Bible that was a, the nature mm-hmm. of being a Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. It, it left me wholly unprepared to understand post-industrial capitalism mm-hmm. and the mess that I was walking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly racially, nothing in Southern Baptist polity or ecclesiology is able to grapple no. with the realities of white supremacy. Mm. Right? It's built in right. So I went to I went following that experience to study at a progressive Baptist seminary. Mm-hmm. My first day of seminary was September 11, 2000. Oh wow! But what followed that as some folks will probably remember was a series of wars built on lies mm. for which no one has ever been held accountable. Mm-hmm. And so the churches that we were serving and the, uh, the churches that we were being trained to be raised up in were completely impotent mm-hmm. in resisting this call to war. Mm-hmm. So, so it turns out that white progressives really don't do discipleship much better than white conservatives do. Right? <laughs> um, they're, they're not prepared to resist the call of empire either. Mm-hmm. So for us, the like the turning point was to say, having witnessed these two attempts at discipleship that just keep missing out, they 
we've got to find some different. Mm -hmm. you know, we've got to find a different context, a different stream to put ourselves in. Mm. And so the process of waking up racially, waking to the way the economic system in the world work, how they affect certain folks, uh, how they privilege people like me. You know, like I guess once you get converted, then you just have to you got to talk. About yeah. Life. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's my story. Yeah. I was watching The Next Question last night, which is a new show that Austin Channing Brown is hosting along with Jenny. And oh, I'm not going to pronounce her. I want to say Chai Chai. And their guest last night, well, a couple weeks ago was um, Andre Henry. And he was really talking about, he said, why do people go with the oppressive flow? And he quoted Gene Sharp, you know, the obedience is at the heart of political power. And that is something that I have a head knowledge of. But last night, that really just pounded into my little Southern Baptist raised heart. Just exactly what you're talking about. It, we're just not equipped. And I just kept hearing when he was talking these thoughts in my head of, well, the you know, I was raised, the Bible says, respect your leaders. And so you just whoever's in charge, you're going to respect them <laughs> in modern day. So we have that playing out right now. Yeah, it's the whole phenomenon of reading Romans 13 as though exactly. Romans 12 there you go. Mm -hmm. the yes, exactly. <laughs> and it just, I think we need to have this wake up. But for those of us who have been indoctrinated with this theology for so long, I think we have to acknowledge our ignorance to move forward. It is a real struggle to wake up. When it's almost in a very, in my opinion, a good way, it's like being sideswiped with, holy cow, I've been asleep this whole stinking time and all I'm doing is just following the herd. And there's people who are getting hurt and left out and there's narratives that I'm believing that I'm not doing any research for, but simply doing because that's what my community does. And we're scared to walk outside of our communities to see the other communities that are desperately in need of financial support and desperately in need of somebody to believe that our government is not who we've always believed it is. Right. In need of liberation. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so there's this ancient poet called Hafiz from Persia, modern day Iran. Mm -hmm. He has this little poem that's a favorite of mine. It says, first the fish must say, something ain't right about this camel ride, and I'm feeling so damn thirsty. <laughs> and to me, that's like that encapsulates so much. It's sort of this wake-up call to recognize that the stories that we've been taught mm -hmm. aren't right. They haven't pointed mm -hmm. us in front of them. And we've been taught to be obedient as a good way of saying it, and not mm -hmm. to question if, or at least not to question power, exactly. right? We've been taught to question certain yeah. things that feel radical without actually getting at the mm -hmm. roots of the power that keep us bound. And so that search for liberation, like we've all got something tied up in. White folks got to get liberated too. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, the system of white supremacy mm -hmm. is harming our souls. In a lot of ways, it's harming our, our economic prospects, right? There's only a, a very scarce few white people that are really profiting. We vote against our self-interests in an attempt to keep people who are different and who don't look like us down right. well, you know. And right, right. So we've all got a stake in this liberation. It, you know, we all are varying levels of the oppressor, uh, but the oppressors need to be set free as mm -hmm. well from their oppression. Mm -hmm. 
So Greg, something I'd be curious to kind of hear you weigh in on is because I experienced this tension amidst the tension that you just named this, you, you know, naming the fact that on some level in many contexts and in many spaces, I am complicit in that oppression. I'm the oppressor. In many instances, I also need to be liberated from that oppression and from my own oppressiveness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just navigating all of that, and there's this tension, and I, I know it doesn't have to be, an e- but there's this tension between resisting the system as it is and trying to create a sustainable, if liberative existence within that, and then living as if a different world or a different system or a different way of being in the world is also possible. Kind of like, on one hand, you have this, you know, sustainable acts of resistance against what is, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, you're trying to actually generate and create and fight for and imagine and narrate a new kind of existence that might seem unrealistic or utopian or, or naive to some and kind of holding those intention. And, and I find myself at times being cynical about the former, about doing the things that almost feel like just putting a bandaid on the problems that we mm. have because they're not actually getting at the root, you know, that is causing those problems and actually kind of paving mm. the ways for more revolutionary, resurrectionary, whatever, mm. you know, however political or theological you want to frame it, solutions. And so I've had to, to like, I find myself kind of oscillating between these two extremes and, and, and maybe the answer, I, I don't like answers that end up in the middle, is a temptation of the white. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but, but how do you, I mean, do you experience this tension? And if so, like, like how do you navigate it between, I guess, uh, to put it simply, between treating symptoms and between treating root causes, Acknowledging that if you focus just on the root causes that, you know, real people are slipping through those cracks, yeah. and so on and so forth. Right. Mm-hmm. So one way to describe the problem as charity and justice mm-hmm. doesn't encapsulate, that's not everything. But I think that we all have different roles within the movement. Mm-hmm. So we need folks who are doing strong charity work, helping to bind the wounds of the, the hurt and the broken heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can't be satisfied with that. So I don't, I don't think there's, I don't think it's necessarily like centrism. I think that we need folks who, like Dorothy Day, would park themselves in the middle of a bunch of riot cops and say, like, all right, the whole problem with this is our acceptance of this filthy, rotten system. So there's like, mm-hmm. we cannot accept reality as it is anymore. But that same Dorothy, you know, then would go home and make soup and bread for 500 people mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's a, that's not like a middle way. It's simply saying that we're going to have to do both of those things. Yeah. At the same mm-hmm. time. Uh, and not everybody's going to be called to doing both of those things at the same time. So it, it's partly a matter of knowing where you fit within the movement. Mm-hmm. What are your gifts? What are the, the places that you're in? Yeah. And perhaps at least, I mean, speaking purely individually as myself, it's a uniquely, it's a, it's a uniquely white temptation to assume on some level I have to do all or both yeah mm. seeing the um feeling the burden or the weight almost in a messianic sense of, of, of kind of being the solution when right. reality is something much much more humble but at the same time no less crucial yeah right exactly and it's not your responsibility to save the world or save anybody in the world right mm. it is your responsibility to be faithful to the particular place that mm. you're in and i mean it's just really it's important to remember that because it's easy to get so overwhelmed mm-hmm. with the extraordinary level mm-hmm. of injustice that we see and feel. Yeah, almost all. So you brought up a keyword that I'd like to riff on a little bit here as far as the saving part. And we've been talking, David's mentioned several times about, you know, viewing it through a white lens and 
how do you see when we work together, when we look for justice and look for places to intervene in the empire, how do you see a white person's role as doing that and not walking in as a white savior? So I think we just, we always begin in a place of humility mm. with the recognition that to be white is to have fundamentally lost something. It is to have lost mm. our ethnic identities is to, in some ways, to lose the strength of our family bonds because of that. Yeah. So so there's a lot that we've lost. And I don't don't say that in a, like, woe is us kind Mm -hmm. of respect. In the recognition Mm -hmm. that that it's costly to be white. It's cost a lot of other people for white people to be white as well, right? Right. But that has always been born in the idea of missions. Like, the mission as we practice it today begins with the doctrine of discovery in the late 1400s. That is also whiteness as a concept, as a construct is developed along the, the same time that mission is developed as an economic imperial set of concepts and action. Mm-hmm. And so anytime we walk into a room where we're trying to engage in what we call mission, we just have to know we carry that history in our bodies. We carry mm-hmm. that theology. It's always there. And so the first thing to do is just to listen and to take it slow mm-hmm. because we're always going to be unlearning that long history. Mm-hmm. And we're always going to be carrying it with us. Mm-hmm. So that's like, that's step mm-hmm. one. Yeah. And then step two is, I think is it's important to stay small. Like capitalism teaches us to scale everything. And there, there may be some things that need to go to scale, but for the most part, it's important for us to stay small, pay attention to details, pay attention to the small. Mm-hmm. And that gives us a good sense of how important we actually are in God's salvation history, which is to say, like, not very important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's crucial for us to pay attention to what's what's in front of us. But God will, the Spirit will accomplish the work that it will with or without mm-hmm. us. And so just to, like, to keep that present, yeah. we're not going to save anybody. And so then we can slow down. And we can keep reminding ourselves of that in the recognition that it's always with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, it reminds me. So um, a few years ago, I discovered this this prayer that was written in honor of Oscar Romero, the liberation m- martyr, you know, uh, believe El Salvador? El Salvador. El Salvador, yeah. And in that prayer, this was this was written on behalf of his murder, not uh, in, in memoriam of his life, not by him. Uh, so it's kind of on his behalf, but not by him. But it talks about the fact that, you know, we accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of magnificent, uh, the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. Give some examples of that. It says we lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. And we cannot do everything. And there's a sense of liberation in realizing that. So it's maybe incomplete, it's a beginning, it's a step along the way. We may never see the end results, but that's the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master mm-hmm. builders, ministers, not messiahs, prophets of a future, not a... And so that prayer, I discovered that a number of years ago, really wasn't even in a position to understand the context in which it was written, the person with whom, you know, for whom it was written, and, and, and the legacy and the life that he lived. But it's sort of become a, a, a reminder to me against that temptation to scale. When you wake up on some level to the reality 
that that surrounds us to the empire that we breathe in the the immediate temptation is is to try to take it on all at once and to not necessarily acknowledge the particularity the context the presentness and okay you know like you can't undo millennia of, of history that you carry with you can maybe do something in this particular time in this particular place and so so yeah, just for me, that 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 prayer has kind of become the the, the mantra of sorts. Ancient of the prayer of sorts that I have to have to remind myself of mm. anytime I face the temptation to um, try to punch above my weight class, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So, Greg, we've talked about the theology of Charlotte, and I don't know personally a lot. I'm curious um, about the native history. Um, you touched on that a little bit earlier in regards to the Catawba. And you talked about the trading where Uptown is now, which for those of you not in Charlotte, Charlotte calls our downtown Uptown. Heads up. But you said that there is actually lands that the Catawba now have again. Um, that's about 40 minutes, 45 minutes from Charlotte. I did not know about that. Do you know much about that? I'd love to hear a little bit more. Um, I don't know much. Um, you can find the, the Catala have a bit of a presence online. They have a, public mm-hmm. and a, a few public outreach events that you can attend, as well as a remarkable history in pottery. And so that's one of the mm. ways that kind of their public presence is made known through their, okay. their really remarkable pottery work. So I'm I'm not, I'm not really well versed in their history, but um, gotcha. Okay. Okay. They do have an online presence where you can learn more. So one thing that we've been asking, uh, not all at this point, but uh, most of our guests, and I believe we did probably ask you this a number of months ago when we uh, recorded the initial interview, is that you know most people listening to this have have come out of probably a, a, a faith expression very similar to the one that you described for yourself earlier that Becca described for herself. Mine is similar, a very kind of post-mortem next life notion of salvation and what faith is for. And, and yeah, it might have some bearing on the here and now, but more than anything, it's, it's a sort of eternal security, something to be looking, you know, looking forward to. Mm. Um, but is often very ambivalent to the here and now such that, that it almost gives us a sort of permission to not be invested in the here and now because you know what's happening afterwards is is a, what is ultimately mm-hmm. important. And because of that, the word salvation, you know, at least for a lot of the people who we talk to on here, has has been rendered meaningless or at least in need of a sort of translation, reclamation, reimagination. Mm-hmm. So you've used the term a couple of times here, you know, in relation maybe to the word liberation and to some of the work that you've done and that you've. Uh, seen done by by the master improvisers that you uh, are privileged to call neighbors and and so on and whatnot. But if you were to, you know, kind of from this theology of Charlotte perspective that you know we've kind of been weaving in and out of in this conversation, if you were to describe or reclaim or redefine the term salvation through this lens, what might that look like? So I guess if I was going to start describing this, we'd have to start by just throwing out everything that the 20th century thought they taught us about. It might be an unsalvable. Or like those constructs of what it means are are not salvage. So so thing number one is that it's not an individual. Mm -hmm. So the the great 
language that has led us is Jesus as your personal Lord. So whatever salvation is, it's not that. It's a communal character. Mm. So to be like to be saved, or maybe another word that would go along with that, to be made, to become sanctified, mm. to be made holy, right, is always like it's always a gift. So it's never something that we achieve on our own, um, and it is it is something that's known within community. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about um, is it the Zacchaeus story where at the end uh, Jesus says. Salvation has come to this house today. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So. yes. There's so, a song. I mean, there's like there's a place to begin building. Like you know what's happened in, in that context is like, the liberation of debt. Mm-hmm. Like, like in and I mean that in not in a figurative. Fashion, no, literally, in a very literal. Like, yes. 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 So, so as an economic character to it, there's this yes. hospitality that's shared and around a common meal. And there's kind of the there's the the upturning of social conventions, like you know, a tax collector for all their uh, wealth were, were not loved people mm-hmm. within that society, mm-hmm. right? And so they to uh, for salvation to come to that house certainly has turned us turned upside down some mm-hmm. of the expectations we have of the characters of the story. So if you wanted to like paint a portrait of what salvation looks like, I think it's got to have those aspects mm. the recognition that it's always a gift it's always going to be upside down from what we think it's probably going to be mm-hmm. mm. that it's it's got to be economic and it's got to involve probably wine and, and hospitality mm. awesome mm. love that so greg how can uh how can people stay in touch with you follow your work how can they uh get up, get their hands on riff of love if they want to do that sure. so a riff of love available wherever you buy books from including from my publisher would stock from those big bad capitalists that mail things yeah. to the door all the time and, yeah. and also from your favorite local bookseller. So for those listening here in Charlotte, are there places still carrying it locally? Yeah, Park Road Books still has copies. My nice. local bookseller. So my uh, calendar and uh, some of my work is available at gregjail.com. organization that I'm part of is called QC, like Queen City, qcfamilytree.org. So you can follow the work there. And uh, there's contact forms and information and stuff. Awesome. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing a little bit more of your story. Folks, you need to pick up yourself a copy of Riff of Love. And also, if you have an organization or a church or a nonprofit, bringing Greg in to do an event like I had the privilege of experiencing a couple of weeks ago, it will really change your perspective and the energy and the presence of the reading, the music all encompassed, I think is just a great gift and tool that can benefit anyone. So I would encourage you to not only pick up his book, but to go to his website and send him an inquiry about how you can bring in this experience. Thank you, Greg, so much for joining us today. All right. Thanks, y'all. For joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, 
we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.